welcome to the next episode of Splitting Cases. This is a bit of a special one, because we've met this man a few times. He's a bit of a mystery man, our beer baron, if you will. He is from Murray's, who are our sponsor, and we've both got Moon Boys, and you've got an angry man. Joe, not really an angry man. He is a rep for Murray's. Yes. But this is a topic that Pointy put out uh, with a list of topics that would be great for someone to pick, and it just so happens that Joe has picked this topic tonight. Yeah, I've decided after narrowing it down to talk about Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. Oh, cool. Before we do get onto the subject, what do you do at Murray's? I'm the local beer guy, and I basically take care of beer sales everywhere between Central Coast and Coffs Hub. So Beer Baron isn't too far off the mark. You could almost say, like, we're local beer guys. The appreciating of the beers. I mean, it takes all sorts. It does. Exactly. Can't have one without the other. Now, why Lou Reed? Just has to be one of my favourite artists. So, uh, yeah, I've been a fan for years, Mm. got a heap of his records. So what was the, the first introduction to Lou? Was it Velvet Underground first or solo stuff? I, I dare say that I would have um, subconsciously heard Walk on the Wild Side at some point during my childhood. Yeah, I feel really like... Inescapable. I feel like the rough average age of us, that song was pretty much in social consciousness and yeah. movies and television and life, you know, mm. by that point. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and then just sort of, you know, reaching that age, about 16 or 17, starting to discover all the great music of the 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, working at Coles at the time and a mate who was a couple of years older was chatting to him about listening to The Doors and reading Jack Kerouac and stuff like that. And he's like, oh, you have to hear The Velvet Underground. And that was, yeah, my first introduction. Was it the first Velvet Underground record? Like we've yeah, yeah, Velvet Underground first? and Nico, yeah. That was, was that the banana? Yeah. Okay, it was the yes. first one for me as well. And like listening to that for the first time when you have no expectations is a bit of a trip. Like it's like you're not really sure what you're <clears> listening to, but completely captivated and amazed because it just doesn't really sound like anything else. No. Like, you can hear the influences of other things, but it's got its own sound. Mm. Mm. You pointy? Um, first introduction, I'm, I kind of think it might have, like, funnily enough, um, would have been the Smashing Pumpkins, who were one of my favourite bands mm. uh, in high school, and they did this cover of Venus in Furs um, for a um, WZRD, uh, sorry, for a WZRD radio show in 1989, which mm. I heard bootlegs of years later. And I was like, oh, what's this Venus in Furs song? And then realised it was Velvet Underground, got into that. Also, High Fidelity. High Fidelity has... Um, oh, Sweet Nothing. Who Loves the Sun. Who Loves the Sun. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, just like a couple of things conversion. I was like, I need to check this out. Also, just as an aside, it's so weird that young Australians know the name of a whole bunch of different American rock radio stations from B-sides on albums <laughs> that are covers and bits and pieces performed for them, like KROQ and yeah. a whole bunch of different other radio stations. Yeah. yeah. it's You always see like the live sets and go, 
Okay. I've never listened to them, but I know who they are. Yeah, I, I actually remember, like, rocking about with a, um, like, Peel Slowly and C t-shirt yeah. um, when I first got in the Velvet Underground. Really? Because I remember being quite indignant that um, the punk that people were listening to was not real punk. <laughs> And um, I was all about you were the that v, guy, the Stooges, you know, Clash Damned, like all the Saints, all the early punk or proto punk type stuff. But, um, yeah, I was pretty much the same when I was. Yeah. That you were both <laughs> that guy. <laughs> I was like, "Fuck you, man! You don't know yeah. what punk really is." <laughs> yeah, it just spoke to me, I guess, at the time. Like, yeah, it just seemed so minimal and raw and. Yeah, God, it, yeah, it was more punk than anything else at the time that well, was coming out was, that was being labelled as punk. Yeah, well, I think that was a problem, like, especially in, like, I guess, mid to late 90s, early 2000s. Some of the stuff that was big in punk was not very mm. good. And there was a lot of good punk coming out at that time, like, don't get me wrong. It was just what was being pushed as that yeah. commercially at the time was obviously nowhere. It, it was an odd quality. time because for the first time ever commercial radio was playing stuff that was being labeled punk yeah so that was why it was so jarring i guess jarring and offensive to people who listened to what was classically considered punk because you're like well if it was it probably wouldn't be on mainstream radio i guess there's always just like a i don't know there's a sense of danger about those early velvet underground records i think like especially like the first two Mm. like they're also so sweet yeah, well, well, the first track, Sunday Morning, yeah. is this totally sickly sweet lullaby. And yeah. then after that, it yeah, descends into all kinds of chaos. Yeah. And it's like, oh shit, I'm, I'm you know, sitting here <laughs> in my bedroom listening to a song about heroin. Yeah. <laughs> I think, like, you didn't really have a, um, you know, teenage, early 20s experience if you didn't, like, listen to heroin and think that, like, <laughs> you were part of something or you were getting this song. Like, it's... Mm. Kind of like the the stairway to heaven for proto punk. <laughs> My first experience would have been, for some reason, our primary school like choir teacher when I was probably in year three or something. Please don't tell me it was heroin. No, like no, of, that's all sorts of. Wrong. No, they got us to sing um, "Perfect Day." missing the point it is missing the point as an adult i realized that and as a kid i thought this is a bit of a dirty song to make primary school people Mm. sing it just seemed like plodding along and so i think i had odd odd feelings about that song for a long time i think also the reason that we sung it wasn't there like a tribute version in the early 90s terrible 90s charity there are a couple of people like bowie was on it and Bowie, Elton John, yeah. George Michael. I can remember discovering it in a special feature on Sunday. Yeah. Some and being like... I think that's why they made us sing it, because it probably would have been maybe around that time, early 90s. But yeah, odd feelings about that song. And I think, as you said, Joe, Walk on the Wild Side was just ubiquitous to culture and radio and life. And people yeah. knew that song. But I remember... I came late to the party with actually knowing 
Hulu read was, and I picked up. They had a bunch of special edition things on sale for like five dollars each at JB Hi-Fi, and I got that and um, Cream's uh, Pink album, Disraeli Gears. Mm. Yeah, and I got those two for ten dollars, and I was like, oh, that's good. And I probably preferred Cream more immediately. And then the more I put Velvet Underground on to justify the five dollars I spent, what, I really got into what it. Velvet Underground was it? Banana. Okay. Right. Yeah, which is uh, Velvet Underground, Underground and Nico. Nico. Yeah. yeah, definitely. But yeah, I was well late to the party before mm. I actually put it all together. But I got there. Back to why I chose it, I guess as well. I can, I sort of feel like he was almost like a, a gateway musician for me into yeah. discovering a whole heap of other music and then seeing. Um, where how they've been influenced by the Velvet Underground and then it just seemed to open up a whole new world of discovery to me. Mm. Well, I guess that's well, a slightly different context, but that whole myth about, you know, everyone that bought that record to yep. begin with, they only sold 30,000 copies or whatever. But, but everybody Everyone who bought it started a band, but it's kind of like, aside from that, it's also people that listen to this were opened up to a whole bunch of different music. So mm. um, Because, yeah, like there's definitely the jumps between, you know, Velvet Underground, kind of got into the Stooges, Bowie, yep. MC5. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, there's just so much. And stuff. then, yeah, I'm being slightly younger than you guys. I actually missed a lot of 90s stuff and then sort of discovered that then after that. So yeah. that led me into the Pixies and Nirvana and totally. Smashing Pumpkins and all of that cool stuff. Um, of which Smashing Pumpkins is definitely out there if anyone's listening that wants to choose that topic. <laughs> He's been aching. He's been aching. Like, there's probably like half of the episode that's going to be really promising, and then the other half, which is almost a commiseration and yeah. like a, a death knell. Save but the gold for the pumpkins stuff. episode, Pointy. Um, so, not having done a lot of reading about Lou, how are they involved with Andy Warhol? They being Lou Velvet or... Underground? Um. The main thing I can remember is the they were basically hanging around the same scene in New York. Yeah. Yeah. And Andy would put on shows and would be projecting his films or whatever onto the stage and Velvet Underground would be playing behind the projection. Okay, so they'd be like the house band for his art. Yeah. Okay, cool. But it was, I guess, almost a whole art experience as you could expect with Andy Warhol yeah they then ended up with all sorts of hangers on us there would have been a lot of drugs and a lot of craziness I dare say yeah Um, just a little bit just a little bit at one stage the whole show was referred to as the exploding plastic and inevitable oh whoa okay yeah yeah yeah. that's a mouthful very flaming lips I'm glad I got that out now yeah but yeah exploding hours time that's going to be flaming inevitable and yeah that consisted of them doing their thing and then there'd be dancers people cracking whips and then that's how nico first got involved and ended up then being on the on the first album with them i feel like when people go when people say things like oh there's there's no original music now there's no people doing completely original things a they're wrong there are but b they're thinking about a particular period in time where social and cultural and technology and chemical changes were all happening all at this one point in time and Lou Reed was at that point in time and Andy Warhol was at that point of time and that's why it was so revolutionary and shocking because it 
just not happened before and those bands formed out of a place that they might not have at any other point in time mm. because it was just new not yeah. necessarily good to start with it formed into something good I think there's definitely um, not to get too dark but I think there's definitely like a post like World War Two type thing for those like all those sort of early yeah old bands oh, and totally the freedom and the expression because it's kind of like you've been through or your parents have been through this really shitty situation so they're you know uptight stressed they're trying to do the right thing to keep you safe yeah you grew up as a kid with that and then you want to sort of branch out and like whilst, well, Reed's and whilst parents there's obviously horrible therapy. stuff going on in the world at the moment and has been yeah it's, nev- it's never stopped um, the youth are mostly sheltered from that as far as impacts to their day-to-day life. Yeah. True. Um, I'll get off my soapbox. Now. That's all right. I'll go back to something completely, probably very naive of me to ask, but was Nico there from the very beginning? Was she there part of the band or was she brought in? I, I think it was an Andy Warhol thing. Like, um, you know, you guys are great. I know this person. She'd be really good with you guys. We could market it together or it'll work well I feel like she's the Fergie to the Velvet Underground's Black Eyed Peas <laughs> you know she, they had a good thing going and she just kind of came and sat around and added bits uh, I you know I I think that what she adds to that first album is, is good mm. and it's brilliant yeah um, but I'm kind of glad it was contained to that because yeah, I too. think it would have got a bit um, old and a bit it would have been rehashed pretty quickly yeah and I don't know how her singing style would have fitted in any of the oh, songs no. that they did on no way why, no why, why, way anyway so yeah okay mm. um, uh, although maybe like on the um, last two Velvet Underground records there were a lot of slower tunes so maybe nah, maybe they, they could have got it back fit in, but I think at that point she'd already done like two solo records you've done enough then Actually, maybe I've got the timeline wrong, maybe, but she definitely did two solo records. Like, I think it was Chelsea Morning and yeah. Oh, yeah. something else, which John got some really good songs that. on it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there was some really good stuff on those records as well, but um, yeah, I don't know. Is John Kale different to JJ Kale? Yes. 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 <laughs> okay. Sorry, just getting my Kale. Um, I don't know. It's a, <laughs> Kale's a big question. thing these days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite in vogue. <laughs> As um, uh, Chelsea referenced on yeah. the Gilmore Girls podcast, like a vegan, Kale is uh, apparently big. Back to Lou Reed, though, did he write most of the early songs or was it all just kind of freeform? Uh, I, Everyone I like the first in. two records were um, Kale and, and Lou yep. fairly mixed, okay. as far as I'm aware. Yep. All right. I believe that the songs that Nico sung on were actually songs that Lou had written. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, for himself to sing as well. Uh, yeah, well, I've heard so him So he sing... wrote for her voice? Um, I don't know that he wrote for her, but her voice as such. Like, I think a lot of the songs he wrote with himself in mind. Mm. And that's I've, yeah, I've heard happened. him sing I'll Be Your Mirror a few times. And it's, yeah. It's, that would be good. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to hear it. Uh, coming from him having written the song when the first time you actually hear it is someone with else. Nico yeah. singing it yeah well definitely massively different voices like obviously apart from the gender mm. just different styles of singing yeah. all together they did a reunion tour in the 90s too well a certain amount of them well mm. yeah like when um, Andy Warhol died Lou did um, Songs for Drella yeah um, with Kale and yeah I think they toured in support for that and tried to get some as Velvet Underground together 
Yeah. I think, um, I think they supported you too. That's just like no. The I, yeah, I'm sorry that I actually mentioned that. Maybe wow, that really? No, yeah, yeah, they did actually support you too. I'll pub, I'll break pub point. rules and Google it before I edit this, and if it is true, we're keeping this in. No, I, I'm pretty sure it is true. Mm. Like, because, but you'd think that just sounds like a disaster. It sounds jarring. Anybody. Especially since in the early 90s, you 2 would have been heading towards the kind of different, like, weird yellow leathery costumes and the big lemon in the stadiums. I don't get U2 at all, any of their stuff. I just don't find it enjoyable. I get some early U2 and I get some Joshua Tree U2. Mm. I think I understand why they're really, really good songs and I know a lot of them just through living in popular culture and society. The only U2 stuff that I ever enjoyed was the stuff off Pop. Yeah. Like, and maybe that's, like, the wrong U2 to kind of like. Well, yeah, a little. But that's the only stuff that I ever heard and went, oh, that sounds all right. Sounds Mm. a little bit different. Yeah. They Mm. did do a cover of Satellite of Love. Ah, they did. Mm. Yes. Also, speaking speaking of covers, um, the only reason I knew about the Velvet Reunion, Velvet Underground Reunion, was this guy I interviewed for my day job, Lindsay Gravina, Got he's a producer in Melbourne. He got his start when he was putting a, a whole bunch of punk bands together for a Velvet Underground compilation where they all did covers. And Magic Dirt did a cover. And of what? I don't know. I can't remember, I'd and like I can't Google it for you. Magic Dirt did a cover of a Velvet Underground song for a compilation that Lindsay Gravina was putting together. And Lou Reed heard it, and he picked that album as the Velvet Underground's support act to tour Europe. So instead of having a support act, they'd just blare that album out really loud. So a whole bunch of European large venues were hearing, you know, 12 to 15 Australian punk acts covering the Velvet Underground. And the only other thing I really ever got from Lou Reed was Transformer. Mm -hmm. Because that album, I think, is just really solid and has commercial potential. Yeah. Well, I think that was kind of like his big... um... I have to make something now. It was when Bowie sort of took him under his wing a little bit. Because I think Bowie produced that record. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he did. Yeah. Because Lou's first solo album kind of went by without much notice. Mm. Yeah. Um, I can't remember who wrote the book. I want to say Mike Wall, but I don't know if I'm making that up. I feel like you're just picking things. You're like, Mike, Raphone, um, Wall. Wall. Uh, Quite possibly. So, this guy who wrote a book that I can't remember who he is... Oh, uh, you know, that guy, yeah. Beer um, Shirt. I do remember, um, yeah, like, a story in there, like, I think Lou went back to try and, like, write songs for other people, so he used to do that early in his career, and then um, I think he might have even went to, like, work for his dad or something, like, after the Velvet Underground finished. Wow. And I feel like... I feel things like... just weren't going that well for him. I feel like a long-lasting career in music is only, like, considered a viable recent thing these days because I've heard a lot of people from the 70s and 80s that were musicians saying, you know, the band broke up, so I just thought, oh, well, time to go get a day job. You know, the issue of legacy and repackaging and reissues and then getting back together as a band or touring or doing a solo record just wasn't Mm. as much a thing for everybody. I think that's just like a product of the times in that like... It was a creative pursuit and you've got... Well, yeah. Yeah. It was kind of like if you were a band in the 60s, by the 70s, 
you were old, man. Like, your band's not cool anymore. No one wants to, like, listen to yeah. that. Like, use the dinosaurs. Go away. And, like, even more so, again, in the 80s, it's like all, all these, like, 70s bands trying to fit the sound of the 80s. And on the whole, with fucking pretty terrible or mixed results, like, trying to keep up with the times. I guess. But the guys, even the guys from Cold Chisel, like, when they, they fell apart... Apart from Jimmy, the rest of them thought, oh, okay, I'll go back to my day job and I'll go labour and I'll go concrete, you know? Oh, no, I guess what I mean is not so much about, um, like, what the pursuits the band members did, just more the attitude of the listeners. Oh, yeah, was yeah, that, yeah, like, yeah. there shouldn't be a lasting legacy that goes on for 40 years. A band should be something that is together for a discrete period of time. You've done what you need to do. And why on, would move on? Why would anyone be listening be back stuff. to us in twenty yeah, years right. as well? People there should don't be more didn't... urgent and vital stuff coming out yeah. that would negate the need for that. And I think it's only now when you look back over at like, you know, sixty, seventy history of rock and roll where it's like, well actually no, there were things of value done by acts in their later but years. Also at that time as well, things were only physically printed and like books they could could and would go out of print mm. so i think people just assumed like you made a record it didn't it wasn't a success people weren't going to know you released it in 20 years because wikipedia is not a thing youtube's not a thing you know it just goes out of print well just because i was listening to um mark Marin this week and he did some interview with this um rock journalist I can't remember his name peter somebody um like he phone sort of story. tableman no same sort of story about how, like, a lot of those, like, the early blues artists didn't get their comeuppance at the time, but mm. then, you know, 10 years later, things become popular, Elvis yeah. is popular, Jerry Lee Lewis is popular, and then all of a sudden there's all this interest in this, like, you know, earlier music. It's yeah. Kind of the same thing. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, so the Velvet Underground, so we yes. spoke about yep. the first record, um, which has obviously got that mix of the mm. haunting weird Nico stuff plus the rock stuff the s and stuff. stuff yeah yeah don't <laughs> the, forget the s and the, the stuff. crazy tripped out stuff it's got like basically a bit of everything mm. the second record which is White 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 Heat I yep. think came out the year after yes um, smaller track selection probably my least favourite Velvet oh really but some of the best songs that's the way I find it it's like it's not something that you listen through all the time because it's a big listen mm. Especially, and what's that song where you've got the two separate vocals happening at the same time? Yeah, I know. Is it, yeah, is it about you... like going to the doctor and some crazy thing? Yeah, I think you've got Kale and Lou both just ranting. There's like little spoken word mm. parts. Oh, and... oh, but there is the spoken one that's all about it's this the story word about a guy trying to send himself to a yeah woman that's what present. i was talking about yeah yeah, yeah. I, I am actually that is so it's bizarre. a bit of a trip it's, yeah yeah cool. i remember um like about uh, a year and a half ago now um like i went to the states on my honeymoon and i was just on this big like lou velvet underground kick at that time and i remember like listening to a lot of white light white heat at that point and just if I was in the right mood, mm. it was great. Like, um, plane trips, it's great for, because you can just kind of, like... Really? Relax, immerse yourself, and you just go on the ride. Mm. But, like, if you want to put something on, like... You wouldn't put it on at a party, or, like... No. When, other, <laughs> when, when other people are around, because it's just not that sort of music. Like, it doesn't mean it's not good music, it's just not for that kind of environment. Mm. Mm. So, 
what like what he have you heard that much or was it no mainly just i i album? only have the nico album and i've only really any, listened like, to the best nico albums album. or anything no oh you're missing a lot of really good i know right Velvet underground stuff because the next record which was the self-titled one mm-hmm. i guess is definitely that's where taken John off Bale the pedal from the distortion pedal mm. it's the quietest album i reckon yeah mm. yeah for sure and was that doug Yule came in that album or the next one I'm not sure. Yeah, you, you'd think there'd have to be another guitarist on there. Yeah. Actually. So I'd say Doug Yule. Who's Doug Yule then? He's the guitarist that ended up replacing John Cale okay. after John and Lou had had a bit of a falling out. And, mm-hmm. and eventually kind of replacing Lou Reed um, in mm. some really? respects. Because, um, yeah, after the self-titled record, they released Loaded, mm. which is what we were kind of listening to before, which has got... I guess some of the the hits that the Velvet Underground had. Well, like the Sweet record Jane. company asked it, asked for it to be loaded with hits. Hence and the name. Yes. Loaded. Oh man. And uh, that's, I guess it actually does have a lot of hits on it. Um, I don't know if they were strictly hits at the time. Mm. But songs, I do feel like they what? But songs that sound like they could be radio hits. So. What kind of question is that? It's just so like, oh, can you just make sure this record is loaded with hits? It's just like. How do you know something is going to be a hit? It's, it's like lightning striking. There was a lot of coke going around at the time. I'm sure at record companies are like, yeah, just get a load of hits so we can get loaded on you guys. Okay, it's like, just go do yeah, your thing. It's like saying, we want a really good record. Well, what the fuck do you think I'm trying to make? Hmm. I'm not trying to make a shit one. Sorry. Um, but yeah, like so that album Loaded was... Um, I think Lou wrote most of the stuff on there, but... Um, mm. Doug ended up taking lead yeah. vocals on a number of the songs. Okay. And I think uh, throughout that tour, Lou kind of became less involved and maybe even stopped playing with mm. the band at, at one point. I think he'd left the band by the time the album was released. And Lou was done with it. Yeah. Then, so. Lou sounds like a man who could get very depressed. Yeah. Like, he sounds like yeah. sounds like a lot of that is very, you know, like, oh, I want to, but I don't want to, and it's awful, and I don't want to deal with it. And... Yeah, well, actually went on, I think, to release at least one record um, without Lurie, like, uh. afterwards. Um, I've, n- I've never heard it, but I... I Post-loaded? Yeah. And okay. I think it's called Squeeze. Um, I've never heard it. Yeah, I have heard of it, but, yeah, I haven't heard it. But, hmm. but yeah, so I'm not sure what that sounds like, but... I well, clearly it wasn't a sweeping in, success. Whenever I go into JB, I never see like massive reissues of mm. Squeeze. So, like, <laughs> so I'm assuming it's not essential to the um, Velvet it's Underground. Like canon. the Doors album that comes, yeah, by, after LA Woman. Yeah, yeah, it's it's no Back in Black. I know it's there, but I don't really need to know about it. Yeah, Pony, have you ever heard the Peel Slowly and See box set? Um, I haven't listened to. I think it's a pretty big box set so I I haven't heard all of it but I'm sure on the reissues that came out recently there must be some of the similar stuff yeah, so I've heard some of the um, stuff that you were talking about how like Lou was singing mm. tracks that Nico ended up yep. singing so I've heard some of that yeah that a lot of that stuff's tapped on the end of the respective albums mm. um, but then there's also a fifth disc at the end of it and it's got them doing almost like prototype jams on some of the songs that then went on to appear on solo Lou Reed records. Oh, okay, so yeah. So there's a really cool. stripped back version of Satellite of Love.
Oh, cool. Well worth seeking out. It's yeah. one of my favourite Lou Reed songs, but yeah. it's done totally in a Velvet Underground style on there. That's awesome. Um, That's like the um, the bootlegs of the Let It Be sessions have uh, John Lennon demoing Jealous Guy, I think, and George Harrison doing All Things Must Pass and a couple of the yeah. other solo songs that he would record. They kind of recorded that well, wrote those songs anyway, kind of in isolation, and then yeah, back yeah, the band anyway. But it's just they're all kind of solo songs to some degree. Where were we? Um, uh, Peel slowly, see final disc. Yeah. Um, so yeah, great satellite of love version on there. Yes. Um, and then as well as that, there's some other songs um, like things that ended up on Berlin. On Berlin, there's a song that's yeah. called Ojim, which actually started off as a song called Ojin. Oh, very depressing. Yeah, the damn mother's ruin. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff that has no um, competitor for you. So. Yeah. <laughs> it will. It will go straight from one Lou Reed part of this to the next. Well, I think we kind of like skipped an important thing if we go straight to Berlin. But Transformer, Transformer was oh, before Berlin. Yeah. Well, Transformer has a whole bunch of amazing songs. Being loaded with hits, it's fucking amazing. Yeah, it's probably more loaded than. Oh. No, more? it's so more loaded yeah. than loaded. You've never even heard fucking loaded. <laughs> I'm contrary. <laughs> okay, what's your favourite song on Transformer? I quite. I I know it always sounds awful when you say the first song on a record. Vicious is pretty fucking good. Mm-hmm. Vicious yeah, is a great opener. I like Satellite of Love. Yep, I'm, I'm on the same. Satellite of Love is my favourite. The the Bowie backing vocals on mm. that are absolutely amazing. Totally. I didn't even realise that it was Bowie probably the first dozen times. I don't I... think I did for a long time. Mm. No. I, I I guess it wasn't... I don't know, it's one of those... I think Bowie guessed it on a lot of stuff back then and it was just kind of discreet. I guess like so. Yeah. Until he did stuff with Mick Jagger and then that was not discreet <laughs> at all. Not discreet <laughs> at all. Never could, as I said, get into Perfect Day simply because oh, the singing it at primary school just and yeah. the re-release of the song with for charity just yeah, left me with a weird feeling. I always just think of like um train spotting the like perfect day and <laughs> Lust for Life. It's yeah. Whole, yeah, true. It's just all wrapped up in that for me. Because I guess it was all around the same time. Oh, true. Um, I mean, same time I got into it. As far as that album goes, I guess you can see it in his voice on other albums, mm. but I feel in particular on that album, one of the things that grabbed me was it's this sense of familiarity to his voice and the whole speaking, singing style. But it almost, yeah. I don't know if it's just the New York accent or how he sings, but it almost reminds me of Sesame Street. Like, there's some songs on there that I almost feel could be Bert and Ernie. Really? <laughs> Your interpretation of Lou Reed before Joe arrived was kind of Sesame Street. It was kind of Sesame Street-ish, but I was just giving it a bit... So I think you're onto something. I think I was just giving uh, Waiting for the Man a bit of a Satchmo vibe, walking around singing it. But, um... Bert and Ernie. Wow. I've got to listen to them in the context of Sesame Street, but it's totally the New York thing. I think we need to do some, like, Bert and Ernie, like, Lou and Bowie types. (laughs) (laughs) No. I can see that. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not the first person to have... Sesame Street was 70s New York anyway, so that would have been perfect. Mm. I want him to have been on Sesame Street. Like when Billy Joel was on Sesame Street. And he sang just the way you are to the grouch. Mm. I like that. 
I did too. Thank you. Was Lou ever on it? I feel like he should have been. I feel like he should have been. Like, he's a classic New York local. and I could just imagine him coming out of the trash can. Yeah, he almost is Oscar the Grouch. Mm. Okay, guys, you've heard it here first. Oscar the Grouch was based on Lou <laughs> Do you think that he was like Bowie in that he had that persona, that kind of... I don't know. Do you think he was the guy on the records? He was the guy on the covers? Do you think he was... That was Lou Reed? I sort of get the impression that he was very specific in what he wanted to do, mm. but didn't take himself super seriously. But that was kind of the persona that was like put upon him. He's like, whatever, I don't. Let's really, run with. I don't this. really care. Like, I just want to do what I want to do. Yeah. Um, because I like, feel like I feel like out of you know the the three, the other one that Bowie. Oh, you know, wrapped his wings around. Uh, the Iggy. other one. It's <laughs> <No. laughs> like you're talking about like the unwanted stuff. No. <laughs> but I feel like Iggy really couldn't help but just be Iggy for the first many, many years or ever. You know, but there's something a bit more calculated about Lou. Well, I, I think Lou was more like he wanted to be a songwriter. Like that's what he was mm. doing before the Velvet mm. Underground. He was mm. writing songs for people. So I think he came from like, um, you know, like a family of workers or things like. He was like, okay, got to get a job, got to do this, and I think it was just a, a product of that because he kind of never really stopped doing stuff. Not that Iggy has either. No. But um, like, I kind of think they came from sort of different places and. Yeah. Yeah. True. And I think yeah, the Stooges were obviously like a very different sort of beast to true. Velvet Underground. I like hearing how like affectionately Bowie talks about both of them and how he was oh, yeah. influenced by both of them and then managed to turn it around and then produce albums for them and do collaborations and stuff down the track. Well, imagine if you yeah. if you were if you're a musician and someone you absolutely were influenced by or loved mm. wasn't doing so great and you were in a position to contact them and help, dude, you know, go for it. I almost think that's what um, Josh Hump from Queens of the Stone Age is doing with Iggy at the moment. Yeah, I think like, so. Yeah. It's like Iggy did that lecture um, last year for uni in the UK where he was saying, you know, there I make absolutely no money off my old records or Stooges records because people don't buy them anymore. They just, oh, who's Iggy Pop? I'll get into his records. I'll listen to them on Spotify. Whereas they used to buy them and I used to be able to make a living through that. I cannot anymore, so I'm forced at my age to continue touring. Not that I don't enjoy it, but I mm. wish I had the option to tour if I wanted, but I don't. Um, and he, he he sort of spoke out and made it very clear that, that you know that's why he was doing the fashion shoots and stuff because boom need the money yeah, yeah, coin. Yeah. yeah yeah and fair enough I don't blame him at all for that but I do feel like that might be why the Josh Hom thing produced album came about because. You know, Josh Holm, I'm sure, would love Iggy, and he's well, in a position to do that. Well, unfortunately, and I know we've sort of touched on this in previous episodes, that, but a lot of stuff that gets popular now is just popular based on the story that comes attached mm. with the record. Like, what's what's the gimmick? Like, what makes yeah. people want to listen to this? And it's like, oh, okay, well, the new Iggy album, Josh Holm, who's massive with Queens of the Stage, is on this. So that gives it a degree of credibility yeah. to a certain group of fans. I'm sure there's a fairly big crossover between those fans of those two bands anyway yeah but I don't know whether many Queens fans are just going to check out the latest Iggy Pop 
solo record. Yeah, but they will because Hom's on it and Hom's producing right. it. It sounds very Queens-like. For sure. But, you know, that's that's pretty much exactly what Bowie did. Yeah, oh, well, I think for Bowie was... I mean, it's definitely similar, but I think he was kind of like, I've taken a lot from these guys, a lot of inspiration. It's a bit of giving back. Yeah, and I, he wanted to give back because, like, you know... I don't, I don't even know that the Velvet Underground even played in the UK like when they were together but like I know Lou did and it didn't go so well no um, and how like, did it go and I know the Stooges like played there and apparently when they went to record it was just like a mess when they did um, Raw Power so I think it was just more about want to give back to, to these guys yeah I guess so what are your thoughts on the two Iggy Pop Josh Holm tracks that we've heard so far. I oh, like it. I love them. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. I spoke to a friend the other day who was a huge Queens fan who was actually, and an Iggy Pop fan as well, and was sort of uh, waiting to see what, what comes of it. That I, was, I, I, yeah, am fully on board. I'm very yeah, excited about the Yeah, I think both the, the songs album. sound great. Yeah. Like, I reckon that the rest of the album is going to get weirder. Mm. I reckon that if those... I the, hope so. Yeah, if those are the first two singles... I reckon it'll be totally the weirder side of Hom, which mm. would be really good for Iggy anyway. Well, I don't think like Josh Hom has anything to worry about. He can pretty much oh fuck no yeah do no. what he wants and it's yeah. Gonna... Well, what I'm just saying is hanging like... around waiting for him to announce a then Crooked Vultures album and then oh. so yeah, which is equally as exciting. equally as exciting. Actually, I don't know. I feel like a outside of my love for Iggy doing something with Josh Hom. I, I would love a Them Crooked Vultures album. Yeah. Another one. I don't know. I, I think I'm more excited for Iggy and Hom. Yeah, that's true. Well, speaking of doing something with a, you know, modern popular band taking him under their wing, Lulu. Oh, did we have to go there? We were going to get there, <laughs> but I just got there a bit sooner. Um, I, I didn't want to put it on this afternoon. Pointy, you did. Why? I I must admit, like I have listened to it a lot, but I kind of just like it for this in principle. Mm. It's like it, it's a big middle finger. It's you know I'm gonna do this with these guys. You know yeah, I'm gonna do what like, I want. I just think that's what Lou was about. He was like, this is what I'm gonna fucking do. I think yeah. it's a good idea. It's what I want to do, and I think you gotta respect that. Mm. And one of the like, most... who brings out an album like was it heavy metal music? Yeah, the, yeah. the record was basically yeah. just like forty minutes of drone. Yeah, that's what he did. So, and so you go. I actually went and saw the tour of that show as part of Vivid Festival. Oh, really? Um, yeah. One of the things I can say about Lou Reed, I've seen him twice. I was mm. lucky enough to see him twice. Wow. Um, awesome. And the first time was the Berlin tour, State Theatre, two thousand and seven. Yeah. Depressing as fuck, but uplifting. But yeah, <laughs> in a weird quite, way. quite easily, yeah. I can say one of the best shows I've ever seen. Oh, that's it was awesome! Amazing. It was him, um, two guitarists, two bass players, drums, children's choir, horn section, Sharon Jones, Anthony from Anti and Me and the Johnsons yeah. doing background vocals. It was absolutely phenomenal. Did the whole album. Finished it off with um, Sweet Jane, Candy Says, and yeah, absolutely fantastic. One of the best gigs ever. That's then awesome. went back to see him in 2010 at the Opera House Metal Machine Music Tour, revisited, mm. and I fell asleep. Oh, it's not, yeah. 
it's not something you want to see live. It's, it's something you barely want to listen to. I but get, I get it, but just, go, oh, I, I paid for it. it. I want to stay awake at least. Yeah. It was just that he was on tour coming to Australia. Yeah, I so he would have went. done that and then finished it with yeah. an encore, of, an encore something. of something. And no, it was just him in the opera house doing serious serious yeah it's really exciting that you got to see him twice it's very cool like Mm. i think one of the things when bowie died was i was like oh i never got to see him you know yeah so i was quite devastated there yeah but i think do you get to see lou at all uh no or or bowie i have seen iggy though so yeah now i've seen iggy twice i think i feel like probably for a good reason bowie's death was more widely freaked out about than Lou I think Lou's was very quietly uh, I think Bowie had a lot more mass appeal mm. true um, true and was like he was a pop star yeah that's true Lou Reed wasn't a pop star like no. he had some like brushes with fame but he yeah. was more of a a cult icon um like a I don't know that they're comparable as hmm. far as no. like mainstream like appeal. I, I just think, think of the two of them. Bowie has been a lot more of a cult icon than what mm. he was. I was I've actually been pleasantly, you know, obviously he's had all these hits, but just the mass outpour of grief yeah. everywhere about it, it's been a pleasant surprise. It's actually but, been quite mm. lovely. Like not to focus more on Bowie than Lou but mm. it's actually been quite lovely the people that I didn't think would be so kind of bummed about it are bummed about it mm. you know? I think it's just because Bowie's had been making records for so long in different styles that you have people that got into him maybe it's similar ages but when he was doing different styles so there's just yeah. such a broad appeal to such a there's something to love across all that you'd be hard pressed to find something that doesn't appeal to somebody yeah he did um and like, obviously, I have the utmost respect for for Lou, but mm. like he probably doesn't have that same sort of broad appeal. No, maybe no, outside no. a couple no. of singles. Mm. Do you think that had Bowie not put out, you know, anything from Scary Monsters on, if he didn't put out Let's Dance, do you think he would have been seen as more Lou Reed esque in that way, or do you think? I don't know. Like, fuck, Ziggy Stardust was fucking massive. True. Like. Uh, it was still more indie like, than I'd, that period, though. But, like... Like, he, Bowie was massive compared to Lurie. True. Like, I, I, I don't think that you can really... I guess it's the whole influential thing versus commercially successful. Yeah. And the whole yeah. 30,000 records, 30,000 people started a band, you know? Yeah. Mm. Like, I, I, I think, like... You know, David Bowie was doing... Like, he was into... He was a lover of music, yeah. like, I guess. And he took what was, you know, maybe a niche market and popularised it in a different way. Yeah. Speaking of different styles, did you hear the track he did with the Gorillas? The Lou Reed one? Yeah. Yes. That was really good. I like that. I don't that. think I've heard it. It's kind of very deadpan drawl, mm. almost poetry to Gorilla style music. Oh, actually, speaking of Bowie and Lou Reed, um, have you guys watched that um, Bowie's 50th birthday concert? No. It's fucking amazing. Check it out. Like he plays with um, Lou Reed, Robert Smith. Considering um, he's around seventy-ish when he died, that would have been mid nineties. Mid nineties. He played yeah. with um, Black Francis, um, Billy Corgan. Wow. Um, How have I not seen this? Where do I get my mitts on this? Um, it's really good. Like yeah, it's, well, fuck loads of it's on YouTube. Just yeah. Oh. Because um, yeah. that was also one of the 
not introduction to Lou Reed, but introduction to Bowie for me was um, Corgan singing um, All the Young Dudes and Gene Genie. Which is funny because... Bowie. Wow. Which is funny because so many people of our age, the introduction to Bowie was Nirvana and the live acoustic thing. Yeah, well, yeah. actually, yeah, I probably would have heard um, Man Saw the World like first. But, but you wouldn't, yeah. But I was just like, oh, okay, it's... Just, but that's like how song. I... That's like how myself, Joe, and I'm sure you... Would have heard "Walk on the Wild Side" a million times, but never really mm. until later acknowledged that it was Lou Reed. Oh, connected it. Yeah, it was yeah. just a, it was just a song. Like well, it's like real wild child. Yeah, like it's just a, really like put that to Iggy Pop. You're just like, oh, it's that thing on Rage. Rage. Yeah, exactly. Really <laughs> exactly. Then I saw Iggy talking to Molly, and then it all made sense. <laughs> uh, where'd Laurie Anderson come into it? Because Laurie Anderson was huge for Lou Reed in terms of just life and inspiration and stuff, but she... I've only heard a few of her tracks, but she's a strange woman. I haven't actually heard any of her tracks. Really? Oh, she's just like vocoder, poetry to music and... Wow. Oh, just, yeah. Very almost, you know, Yoko Ono-esque without the screaming or the disruption of his musical life. I think it was like mid eighties, yeah. Uh, after Blue Mask, um, yeah. Before New York, New York, so, yeah. Mm, okay. About that point, he stopped yeah. drinking, remarried. Yeah. Remarried? No, I think it was remarried because he had someone else beforehand mm. he was married to. But Laurie Anderson seemed to be a really good creative muse for him. What are we yet to cover? Because I mean, there was stuff post Berlin and pre. Oh, there's a lot of stuff to cover in between, but um, I can't say I'm familiar with a lot of it, except for maybe New York a little bit and Blue Mask. Like, I think there's a couple of albums in there that sort of stand above the rest. Mm. And I remember, I actually have not listened to it yet, but I remember, like, um, just reading articles about The Raven... Um, when it came out and being interested but never actually doing anything about it yeah I've heard a couple of tracks of it but I haven't gotten around yeah a couple of tracks back in the day when you download individual songs on LimeWire um, before it was easy to (laughs) pull album so yeah I Um, I haven't experienced it all Am I being weird in assuming that that is Edgar Allan Poe The Raven to music? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I think I heard about that but then it just seems like such a weird concept that I might have dreamed that up you know? No, I never listened to that. Lou Reed was. So I've done the in-between albums. Yeah. I'd, well, in I'd, some degree. <laughs> some degree. In some degree. What we remember. Well, what you guys remember. Well, I, I mean, I mean, I think they're not albums that are, um, I guess, remembered critically as amazing. And I'm hmm. sure there's lots of good stuff on there, but like, I can't say oh, I've really gave them a massive listen. Yeah. But it's one of those things where you know that it's always there. Mm. And one day you'll go back and you'll probably find a lot of a lot of pearls in there. Or you'll get hit by a bus tomorrow and... Well, you won't care, really, will you? Because you're dead. Well, I won't but know, so... Someone... Okay. If you get hit by a bus tomorrow, I will say at your funeral, he thought those Lou Reed albums were always there. He just didn't go back and listen to them. He really wanted to. And I, for one, feel he would have enjoyed them. Just make sure you play Perfect Day at my funeral. You would love that. I you would, would love it. Sing it. I'll, I'll sing it. I would I'll sing that. Perfect Day completely a cappella and lead a rousing chorus of your family and friends. And I would also like... Um, like, I know we spoke about Red Dwarf kind of Ta-da-da-da-da. funerals off mic the other night. Yeah. But, um, boom, but boom, there's boom. also... 
Also, I would like to see you later, alligator. <laughs> I, I feel like that's uh, that's apt. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of funeral plans. <laughs> Speaking of ends, is that what you're going to say? And in the end, um, I don't think there's anything left to cover with Lou Reed. That we know about no, in our I, pub trivia rule minds. No, I, I think all we'll say is like we've obviously sounded a little bit reverent in this episode, but um, to, irreverent about what? Well, like, like you know, towards Lou Reed's Bowie, dad, Lou being Reed, Lou Reed, and, um, and Iggy. But obviously, we have the utmost respect for um, oh all God, of those positions yeah. and hundred percent being a very um, sad time, I guess, over the last couple of months oh god also yeah last couple of years for with Lou's passing and Iggy must be bummed well see that was probably too reverent uh, well I'm I'm sure no one thought that Iggy would be the one to oh to yeah god no yeah but like he's buff as fuck like oh totally man Greyhound that dude is fit mm. Greyhound is a perfect analogy because he's not like super ripped buff but he's just Lean and toned. Mm. Yeah. I did like that they played um, I Want to Be Your Dog twice when I saw them. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Is that Big Day Out of yeah. 5? Um, yeah, I saw them at two Big Day Outs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I don't remember. Maybe it was both that they played twice. <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember. But, um, that is excellent. I was seeing Iggy. That sounds like a good place to end this. It does, right? <laughs> I, yeah. Okay. No, no, no. no. What were we'll, you going to say? We'll, we'll, Feel yeah, free. We'll get into there, but I'm just... Considering I chose the topic, I probably should have looked into this, but have there been any posthumous releases at all? Um, I don't know if there's been, like... I don't think so. Lou Reed's solo like, has been an album, stuff. but no. I didn't know... And at the time of his death, I can remember there being talk of some sort of unreleased material coming out, but I, think... I haven't seen it actually mm. happen. There's definitely oh, been... Re-releases of some of the Velvet Underground stuff, but mm. I don't think that. I don't know if that's to... even been post him dying, though. Has oh, it? Oh, no, there has been, but I don't know if that's like really got anything to do with his passing. I'm sure that was just like plan anyway. Forty fifth anniversary, fortieth anniversary type yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, but actually, you did remind me of a good point. It's like, what's the thoughts on whether it's a bad thing for people to get into something after it's over? Like, someone's died. And now everyone's jumping on the bandwagon. So if Lou Reed died and I really got into the Velvet Underground because I learnt more about it through his yeah, dying. Yeah, like, to me, that's a good thing for everybody yeah. involved. Like, yeah, not I a agree. bad thing, but, like, it always irks me when someone gets on their high horse, like, oh, now all of a sudden wants to be a fan yeah. of X because they've died. Why didn't they support them before? It's like, well, yeah, it sucks they didn't, but oh, at, least they, at least they found their way there. At least they found their way there, and... Maybe they were just people who wouldn't have found their way there until, say, maybe they just didn't travel in circles Lou Reed's music was in, you know? Yeah, like, the people that liked him, and then they saw it on the news, or they read it on a website, and they went, Lou Reed, I know that song he did. And then they went to listen to that song and found a billion more. Well, I always think of, think of your own experience, and when Johnny Cash died, I'd never really listened to any Johnny Cash before. <laughs> And then I was like, <laughs> and then I was like, oh, well, I'll go check that out. That's I was fine. exactly the same, except for when I went to see Reese Witherspoon in Walk the Line. I was like, I've never listened to Johnny Cash before, and she was pretty cute in that. 
What? She was. Oh, oh, I thought you were going to say, was. and I went out and bought all these Reese Witherspoons. <laughs> went out and bought several um, copies of Legally Blonde. But, but yeah, like, I don't know, like that, I probably never would have listened to Johnny Cash if it wasn't hmm. for him passing, movie coming out and going, oh, wow, this is actually good story. Good I songs. don't think it's a bad thing at all. No. I, well, yeah. I don't, clearly. And, fuck, look, if whoever has control of his estate, and I'm sure it's his wife... Uh, and his daughter get the royalties from a billion people buying re-editions of Bowie albums because he's died. You know, not a bad, not a bad thing. You know, he's supporting his family. Yeah. Maybe like buying a Bob Marley greatest hits is supporting several generations of people fighting over his oh, will. So you better at least buy seven copies of each album. Yeah, sure because there are a lot of people fighting. The money, right? There's been a lot of people fighting over Bob Marley's money. But you know what I mean? Like as long as. As long as you like the music, who cares? 70 years is going to be out of copyright anyway unless we extend it somehow and it's all just free reign anyway. And it's like those... Oh, my God. So I always, as a teenager, looked at those bins of, like, $2 CDs and stuff and went, is it just that nobody wants them or is it just that they're old or whatever? It's that they're, like, completely out of copyright and people can just do what they want and reprint stuff and whatever. So is that 70 years? Is yeah, it works? used to be 50, I think, and now they've put okay. it to 70 because I think, uh, probably wrong here, but I think it was a decision around people like Elvis and people of that period mm. that when copyright law came, was really a thing, there wasn't the kind of longevity we were mentioning before that people could just like Google and look it up and, and there were fights to push quite high prominent artists up to 70 years. And now I think it's possibly a certain amount of years from when you die as well, like 70 years from when you die. Yeah. I don't know, they've messed with it a couple of times. Anyone can just have this episode, though, for free, forever. Mm. They can. Mm. And they can uh, go and find Murray's at their local bottle shop, too. So, you know, both our guest and us, there are ways to get to us. That sounded way Stories. creepier than it should have been. <laughs> there are ways to get to us. <laughs> Thanks for uh, having me on the show, guys. No yeah, worries. You are... Uh, excellent beer baron. Excellent <laughs> beer baron. And just very passionate guy. We knew you'd be able to talk about something great. And Larry, it's been good. Uh, where can they find us, Pointy, if they need to find uh, Facebook, Twitter, anything like that? It can all come from... Uh, our gateway website, which is <laughs> splittingcases.com. You will find doors to lots of places. Beautiful. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Sleep. Hey.